podcast was made possible by Thrive AP, a transition to practice solution for PAs, NPs, and the facilities that employ them. Thrive AP's educational curriculums accelerate skill application of advanced practice providers, improving outcomes, retention, and career satisfaction. Thank you to Thrive AP for partnering with our show. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of White Coats of the Roundtable. And today... I have Mike here with me. Yeah. Hi, John. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about interviewing again, Mike. And we've had plenty of stories of interviews that we've been a part of, that we've led, uh, as well as when we've been a candidate. So last week, we talked more about the preparing for the interviews and what we can do to best position ourselves uh, in getting set up for success for the interview. But today we're going to talk about the actual interview. Uh, And this is going to be more of like a discussion because there are plenty, you know, tips and tricks out there of, of what to do and what not to do in these interviews. And it's, it's going to come up in our conversation, Uh, but it's just not going to be a structure because I think I want to, I want to hear more about some good and bad interviews that maybe you've been a part of. And if if you want to hear some from me too, we, we can do that, but Let's start off today by talking a little bit about when you've been crushed by an interview, like coming out of it soul crushed, thinking nobody's ever going to hire you again. But I also want to hear about maybe an interview where you felt like you annihilated it and they should just put you right in the COO spot. I've got, so we talked about it a little bit last week. I don't actually have a ton of great interview stories simply because I've been at the same job since I graduated and most of my consulting work does not include formal interviews. But a couple stories for you. So first, I was approached by a pharmaceutical company and they asked me to interview for an MSL position that was open. And this was several years ago. And MSL interested me. I was unsure the, the travel involved was going to be quite high. I think they indicated it would be 50% travel. My territory would have been New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio. So it was a, a large territory. And I interviewed. It was a, you know, a very nice interview. It was just with the, the MSL manager, the director. And didn't ask salary, didn't really ask anything, was more focused on you know the role, the specifics, the, the travel and all that. And after the interview was done, I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to remove myself from contention. I, I just think it's not the right time. This isn't really the direction I want to go with the career. And everything was cordial and fine. Fast forward maybe six months later, and the person who they did hire in that role was talking to me. We were at a conference or something and, and talking. They're like, I can't believe you turned this down. And then they told me, they're like, this is one of the highest salaries I've ever seen in this role. And then they were telling me about their stock options and how, you know, the stock for this pharmaceutical company has performed really well in the past year. So <laughs> I did the math. I sat down and it turns out that if I had uh, followed through and maybe just continued the interview process a little bit farther, my salary would have doubled. And that doesn't even include stock options, which I think at this point are, you know, threefold higher than 
than when you know I interviewed several years ago. So I would have been doing fine. I would have been doing quite well. So I guess it's a good indicator of a always hear people out. You know, if you're passively job hunting, it's never a bad thing to at least listen and see what opportunities there are. But B, also that maybe money isn't everything, because I think now looking back and the way my career has gone, if I had taken that job, it would have been more limiting because I wouldn't be able to do consulting and, and all these other things on the side. And really, in my career right now, a lot of my joy and uh, you know the fun that I have in my career is from being able to do a lot of different things and have my hand in many different pots. But here's another one for you, and this is not mine. Um, I'm stealing it from a family member, and I'll, I'll keep it somewhat vague just to make sure. But uh, this family member recently interviewed for a job and the job interview went great. They had several different interviews on the second or third interview. They offered her the job and then said, you know, what are your salary expectations? So she, you know, had a panic moment and then said basically 30% higher than what she currently makes. And without hesitation, they're like, oh, oh, okay, great. And, you know, presented it as a way that she probably still undersold it and could have gone much higher. So then, of course, now she's thrilled because she's, you know, getting a 30% increase, but also (laughs) probably could have pushed a lot higher, too. So maybe that's something we'll talk about later on of just how do you figure out what do you ask? And, you know, how do you make sure that you're not underselling yourself or how do you make sure you're not asking for too much and then offending them? But so those are my my lame and limited job interview stories because I actually don't have a ton. So what do you have? I know you've been no, a little that, bit more fluid in your career. We can we can work off of those. But unlike you, Mike, um, I don't get every job I interview for. <laughs> well, I've been at the same job. So, you know, I'm batting like one for one. So I've got so I was thinking about this for a few days because. I have interviewed a lot with residency stuff and, you know, switching careers. My goodness, Mike, I just remembered this one this morning. I, I, I'm cringing now thinking about it. And not even just from my side. We could even break this down like like a, like a red zone or like ESPN. <laughs> like you can do that for me. But so it was for a clinical pharmacist position. And I was very disenchanted with the retail world at this point. Uh, I wanted to be clinical to begin with. I've mentioned before many times on a podcast that I wanted to go to residency, but I didn't match and I couldn't scramble because we were having our first kid. It just wasn't a good time for our family. I got an interview for this, uh, a referral and it was for a local hospital. I get to the interview early I'm sitting in my car, pumping myself up, sweating as I do. I walk in during an interview time, go to the front desk, tell them I'm here. And they're like, wait, who are you here for? Oh, wait, okay, um, I'll give them a call. They come down to get me. They're like, "Um, where have you been? I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you're an hour late. Uh, I'm an hour late. I've been sitting in the parking lot for an hour I thought the interview was at this time. Like, no, it was an hour before. Like, great, strike one. So I go sit in the interview, Mike, and one of the first, first of all, the one of the guys that was there, he was um, administration of some sorts, not a great reputation. He puts his feet up in this interview, and there's three people in this interview, uh, plus me. And then somebody asked me a question. Hey, John. If you had to deal with a difficult patient situation, 
uh, or a provider that you didn't agree with, how would you handle it? And I gave my answer. <laughs> the manager goes, yeah, that's wrong. Wait, what? <laughs> I thought this was a subjective question. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that's not how you, you should handle that. <laughs> wow. Okay. It just went on like oh, that. Mike. It was the worst interview I have ever had. Were they just ticked off that you were an hour late? They were notoriously poor management and don't have a good reputation. So I uh, I left that interview and I went to my next interview a couple of days later, which was one of my best interviews of my life, but it was eight hours long. And yeah, because I had to interview, it, it was for, yeah, it was, it was intense. So I interviewed with multiple colleagues, with different administration. Um, I even had some uh, technician management come in and talk to me. But I felt so confident because I was honest. I was vulnerable. Uh, I, When I say vulnerable, I was telling them like, yeah, I, I know that I can do this. I think there's going to be a lot of catch up to do because... Um, I didn't have my residency, so I know that this is kind of like a shot in the dark for you guys, and you're going to try. But I was just honest, but personable, great examples, and I was hired. I was actually hired for a position um, beyond what I went for, for the position I actually wanted. What I have learned in these interviews so far is you've already done the work to get where you are. You have the examples um, if you can be confident and truly believe that you are meant to have that job, you're going to go into the, into the interview much more relaxed, confident, uh, and probably be able to explain yourself a bit more. That first interview, I got thrown off and then confidence went out the window and just got shot. I would imagine. I mean, it sounds like their intent was to try and bat, beat you up a little bit and, and badger you. And, and maybe that's their style. You know, I could see maybe a manager going into that thinking, I'm going to put them in a stressful situation and see how they respond. But that really does not set up well for a good company culture to go off of what we talked about in the newsletter this week. Exactly. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. Is make sure you're going for positions that you actually want to be a part of their organization, not desperate. Right. I think this, the moral of the story with that one is that interviews are two-way streets. Not only is it an opportunity for an employer to assess you and for you to hopefully gain uh, you know, the job, but it's a great opportunity for you to make sure that it's the right fit. Especially in today's economy where I think it's still very much favoring job seekers as opposed to hiring. I know at least here we're having an immensely difficult time finding good candidates because unemployment is low, salaries are quite high. So it's especially now, maybe in a recession, we have less ability to be picky. But right now, it's a good time to be picky. There's a lot of different competition for jobs out there. So I want to talk about the specifics, the questions that we would ask other people, maybe at the organization or just general interview questions. Uh, because when we finish our interviews, we hyperfixate as well. Think about the questions we've been asked. Things Think, think about things that we wish we would have. So let's take that time now to talk about those those questions. So with the with the uh, emergence of the virtual interviews versus the in-person interviews, uh, as a candidate, what adjustments should we be making to ensure that we have like that strong presence 
and that connection during virtual interviews compared to when we had the in-person interviews? I think for me, the big thing, and this is more so when we're interviewing people, is COVID has made us a lot more relaxed. And I think that's a yeah. wonderful thing. And it's really great that we get to meet people where they're at. Last night, I was on a, a Zoom board meeting for an organization and had myself muted. And the kids were wild and chaotic in the background. So the, the times that I had to unmute and contribute, it was very clear in the background that there was chaos. But I, you know, the trade-off with that is that I was able to do it from home. I didn't have to come to the office. So it did not have as much of an impact on family time as it would have been if I was not able to do that from home. But the flip side to that, especially in a job interview setting, is I think it, if you're doing a virtual interview, it really is important to think about your setting. You want to do the interview in a quiet place without distraction. I, I personally, I would not do a job interview at Starbucks, you know, or at a coffee shop where there's going to be a lot of background noise. There's going to be people walking behind you back and forth. Find some place that is quiet. Find some place that is going to be um, conducive to you focusing. But then also make sure to wear something. You know, this is, I'm, as we're talking about virtual, I'm wearing a checkered shirt, but make sure to wear clothing that is going to be presenting well on camera. And there's all kinds of articles that you can read and we'll probably include them in this week's newsletter as we're talking about this. Like checkered patterns can be a little bit distracting and they can be hard to show on camera. So make sure you're wearing something that looks okay. And then lastly, make sure that you're prepared. I think in a virtual setting, having notes you know, in front of you where you can see them or having things that are ready to go so that you're not turning and coming off camera to look for papers or things I think it does make sense to stay on camera to make sure that your things are readily accessible so you're not, you know, turning and, you know, showing your butt to the camera as you're grabbing something out of a desk, things like that. Those are at least the the few tips that I would think of off the top of my head of just things that I've noticed when I'm interviewing students or interviewing prospective employees here at our job. But yes, I've read that you shouldn't wear gingham or checkered patterns on camera because it can be, um, you know, too much. And even now looking at it, I think it is the checkered pattern is a lot. So obviously we do this podcast in video and, you know, a lot of times we're just doing this with the video and the video is going to sit in a vault somewhere because we don't always post it. But we have varying degrees of professional dress depending on where we're at. So today you're in a sweatshirt and I'm in a dress shirt. What would you wear for a virtual interview? So the question sometimes comes up, do I care about below the waist <laughs> right uh and there's those funny videos of people standing up and they're in their whitey tighties and stuff um all while that is funny and you could take a very relaxed nature with how you dress uh it's been shown many times in literature that what you wear during your interview to the level of professionalism you will act to that level. Just like when uh, when you come home from work, if you still have some work to do that has to do with your office job, stay in your work clothes. Even keep your work shoes on because it does keep you in a certain mindset. Uh, so when you wear professional clothing, naturally your body is going to take more of a professional uh, stance and position because you every time you wear these clothes, you're usually in that position. So your body will kind of take over. But 
If you want to fly loosey-goosey and that's what you like to do, don't stand up. That's that's Well, that's where, yeah, and that's where I think just wear, be professional, wear pants, you know, wear dress pants. I just had a meeting uh, last week and I wore a dress shirt and I had sweatpants on because it was at night and I had to get up to get something. I think my throat was dry and I had to run, get a glass of water. And I had to do this like shuffle to make sure that I could get off screen without standing up with, you know, these green joggers on. So in a job interview setting, especially where the stakes are going to be higher, throwing on a pair of slacks just to make sure that if for some reason during the interview, you do have to stand up to go grab something that you're not going to be embarrassed if you're in your tidy whiteies or even if you're in gym shorts. So I think it doesn't take a whole lot to put a nice pair of pants on. Please do it. So the other one of the other points about virtual interviews that you brought up, I think this is a huge advantage over in-person interviews. Because they can only see here, you, I'm someone who likes to rely on notes. Um, I fly by the seat of my pants. I go off the cuff a lot. Uh, but if I have a cue, it's much more, it's much easier uh and much more direct line of conversation if I can have a point to start me off. So you can have notes behind you. You can have a list of 20 questions you want to ask the employer. You have all of your behavioral type answers, you know, the topics of how you could answer that behind it so that it's all set up and you don't have to worry that you're going to freeze because you've, you've practiced this. You've built these, these guidelines. I think that's a great uh, advantage of doing these virtual interviews. Completely agree. You, it allows you to have more preparation and have everything maybe more accessible. So let's shift. I like that we're talking about dress code. So let's shift away from virtual and talk about what do you wear to a live interview. And last week I told the story about me going to a interview at a community mental health center that was very relaxed and progressive. And I showed up in a tailored suit and they were all in flip-flops and Hawaiian t-shirts. So what would you wear for an interview? And with that, would you ever adjust what you wear based on the employer? Or do you think you just, you wear what is true to yourself? So there's a couple of ways I think that you could handle this. If you have connections within the company, ask them, what do the hiring managers prefer people to wear? What turns them off to even thinking about you as a potential candidate or what impresses them? So if you have somebody internal, rely on them. Uh, secondly, most of the time when you're setting up your interviews, you're dealing with an HR or a recruiter uh, who doesn't necessarily have say in whether you're hired or not. Uh, they're setting up your interview. You can ask them. Just be honest. Say, hey, you know, I've been in a position before where I've overdressed or underdressed for certain uh, interviews. I just want to make sure that I'm aligning with uh, what is expected. So is there an expectation for the the interview when I show up? Should I be wearing a suit? Uh, is shirt and tie acceptable? Is business casual? Does anybody else wear ties there? I think those are appropriate questions to ask. If all else fails, dress as professionally as you can because you're only ever going to be um, uh, looked down on for underdressing. Yeah, I agree. I think, I don't know who it was. I think it was my grandfather maybe, but early on in life, I remember my grandfather saying, you're never wrong if you wear a suit. And I, I, maybe that's changing now. I think COVID has made us much more casual, but even 
to give some frame of reference, I've been doing consulting and giving presentations for medical education and for pharma now for seven years. And when I first started this, suit, including shirt and tie, every single presentation. And then it kind of shifted already even before COVID, where if it was a lunchtime presentation that was in an office, then I would downgrade and I wouldn't wear the tie. I would go with the California casual. I'd wear the suit without the tie. And since COVID now, I for lunches or in-office programs, it's usually sport coat and khakis or slacks. And then for dinner presentations, I'll still wear a suit, but never with a tie. And, you know, that obviously is still much more formal than most of our day to day. But it's even in that world where everything is tailored suits, you know, appearances, everything. It's becoming much more casual from a job interview standpoint. I can't imagine ever going to a job interview without wearing a suit. But that's also, you know, the jobs that I'm going after are pharma, you know, private practice, medicine. So they're generally going to be more corporate focused jobs. I think if you are going to a nonprofit, you know, if, for example, my wife is now working at a, um, a community primary care clinic that, you know, works with refugees and underserved, and that clinic is far more casual and laid back. Now, she still wore, you know, a, a business suit to the interview, but her day-to-day job is going to be much more casual. But I think in an interview setting, at least for me, and I'm definitely more conservative and more formal than maybe the general public now these days, but I would always wear a suit just to be safe. I've had technicians show up to job interviews wearing suits. And every time we leave, it's usually the eyebrow raise to the other management you're talking to. They're like, wow, this guy wore a suit? Like It shows you're taking it seriously. It it really does. Um, So I, I would always lean towards dress as professional as possible unless you know the expectation is to dress uh, more casually. Yeah, and I would say that if it's a job where wearing a suit would be seen as a negative or a detriment, you know, if it's someplace that's super laid back, super casual, presumably you're going to know that. You're going to have some, you know, knowledge of company culture going in because if there's that much of a deviation from a a traditional formality of wearing a suit, you're probably going to know that going into the interview. Well, to the next point then, if you're already if you've already been researching the company, uh, what are some unique and may I say thought provoking questions that we could ask them during the interviews to demonstrate that we have genuine genuine interest uh, in the company and and the role even? So I think there's a lot of different ways that you can take it. I think you know you want to be careful because I think you you don't want to look like a suck up. So you, you want to ask questions that are genuine. You want to ask questions that are actually going to give you information that's helpful. I think if you're asking questions just for the sake of asking questions, it looks dumb. I, you know, my students do this all the time. I'm sure you've taken enough students that you have it too, where they'll, they'll ask, you know, they'll suck up questions because they're just trying to show how much they know, or they're trying to show, you What's know, a suck up question. Okay. So we'll use a psychiatry example. So the questions that I don't like are when a student comes in and they'll say either something that shows that they've not put in the work. So if they come in, they say, oh, what what class of medicine is Celexa? And it's like, okay, well, you know, you could have figured this out in 0.2 seconds Googling. So either you're lazy or you're asking me this question, not because you legitimately want to know, but because you're trying to show how engaged you are, but it just comes off as unprepared. Or they'll come up and very often this will happen to me when I'm teaching, not as much when I'm precepting, where a student will come up and they'll have this like really, really complicated question 
um, about, you know, a drug or something that you can just sense in the question they don't actually need or care about the answer. They're just trying to look smart. They're just trying to, you know, find some obscure question that they can ask, not because it expands the knowledge base, but rather because they're just trying to demonstrate, you know, they're trying to puff up their feathers and show how smart they are. It's pretty obvious, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. And from that standpoint, it's more so that the questions don't fit the fact them pursuing an expansion of knowledge. It's a, it's just like a one-off or it's a super nuanced little ridiculous question. It's like if you went to a car dealership and you're looking for a car and, you know, I just bought a hybrid. So if I went to the car dealership and I said, well, I've read online that, you know, when the hybrid switches over to the gasoline engine, on average, it does it at 12 miles an hour. Can you confirm that at 12 miles an hour, it switches over? And when it does switch over, is there a loss of efficiency when that occurs? There's a broader, if I'm trying to expand my knowledge base and I'm asking, you know, hey, what does it look like when it transitions from hybrid to gas? That's a reasonable question. When I say I've read that at 12 miles an hour, this happens, it's like, okay, now you're just trying to show off. You're trying to show that you're really knowledgeable or learned on this topic, but you come off as pompous. You come off as self-serving. So I, I know it's a little bit hard because it's it's hard to give specific examples, but that's the only thing I would be cautious about is in an interview, make sure that the questions you're asking are legitimate questions that help you understand the company, not questions that are just you trying to suck up. Yeah. Uh, I've even had, I've had a suck up question, Mike. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. And when a, an interviewer has to say, like when they look back and they go, um, I think I'm gonna have to get back to you on that one. And they write it down. If your interviewer is at telling you they're going to get back to you on a question, you have gone outside your bounds most likely. On the first, on the first interview, I think that's correct. Yes. Right. So, um, like let them take the lead. Don't take control of the conversation. You're not in control of the conversation. Um, it will look pushy. I, I think it'll look pushy if you do. So it's important though, to have questions for the interview, uh, for the interviewer rather, you don't want to be stuck in a position where they say, do you have any questions? And you go, no. Right. Right. There is a company called Path Forward. And Path Forward is a company that assists caretakers get back into um, their job fields and, and they help them with interviewing uh, practices. They got great tips and tricks. So there's some of this information is from that organization, but they recommend to have 20 questions listed out to ask the interviewer. So just in case a question has been answered during the interview, you still have something to ask because we should be engaging uh, without showing desperation, right? So questions such as, what does it, what does it look like when somebody thrives in this uh, environment? Or can you give me an example of an individual or an example of an individual who does thrive here and let them explain what it looks like to be successful in that company? That's a great question. I agree. And those are both great examples because they're more big picture questions. It's not, you know, on the third Saturday of February, will you be planning on having me, you know, something where that's the, oh, I'll have to get back to you. And the interviewer is probably rolling their eyes because of the the level of granularity of the question. So having those big picture questions is a wonderful thing because I agree. I think that's a bad look if they ask, hey, do you have anything that you want to ask us? And you say, no, I'm good. Okay, Mike. 
as usual. Now, you're the one that usually says this, so I hope I get the wording right. Um, we need to keep the humanity in our lives and our busy professional healthcare. Uh, I don't know how you say it. Let's just talk about personal stuff, Mike. You so, you say it so eloquently. You say it the same way every time. I don't know how you do it. Anyways, I, let's talk about something personal. You usually go after me. Last time, you went first. So today, I'm going to go first. I saw a bear. <laughs> okay. At your house? So I was, cam- I was at my camp, and I was taking uh, my buddy around in, in our car, showing him around the, the podunk back road. I, I love it over there. And and we're going up this dirt road, and I'm not looking. All of a sudden, I hear, bear! My, the guy with me was like, yelled bear. And I look up, the biggest black bear I have ever seen. I did not know that, that they could be this big. Because many people mistake them for large dogs. Comes, like, rattling out of the bushes, out of the trees, across the road, into this brush. Naturally, the... Um, the idiot that I can be sometimes decide, let's go look for it. So I pull up next to the pond and he's got a great um, SLR camera and he's got some film camera too. And so we're trying to get a picture of what had happened. The bear dove in the pond, came up on its haunches, just standing there looking around. And by the time we got out to take a picture, he was gone. But I'm looking around where I said, leave the car doors open. Because if we have to get in, I've read about these towns in like Juneau where you have to keep all the doors open and unlocked so you, anybody can get at the door at any time. Bear was nowhere to be seen and could have been mauled. I don't know if there were any babies around, but I survived, Mike. Fantastic. Yeah, the black bears at times can be a little bit uh, more aggressive, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially with the babies, but this was the biggest black bear. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I think I want my personal item to be an ode to summer. So my my kids are in their last week of school, and the week that we're recording this, it's actually the day after Juneteenth. So they had off yesterday, and even though they have two more days of school left, totally in summer summer break mode, and it's just lovely. You know, they're they're staying up late until nine p.m., but they're off playing in the neighborhood, and you have the windows open at the house, and you can just hear all the laughter or screaming and blood curdling fighting, but you know, sitting on the back porch, they're playing and doing their thing. Yesterday, we went to a friend's opening of a new restaurant and all the kids just played outside because the weather's nice. And it's just there's something lovely about the rhythm and pace of community and socialization in the summer where everyone can be outside. Everything is so much more communal. I think from a mental health standpoint, it, it ties in. I know this is supposed to be a personal item, but Seasonal depression is not just light levels. I think it's also that we feel more isolated in the winter because we end up doing more Netflix and chill. In the summer, we're more social. And and I really think it makes a difference. So I think I'm just grateful and thankful for 80 degree days, for long days of sunlight and lots of opportunity to to hang out with friends and family and really just enjoy these summer months. Thank you for sharing. And everybody else um, listening today, as we go to part two next week and you can hear more about these interviewing tips um i like everybody to start thinking about maybe where interviews have gone right for you and gone wrong for you let's uh, do some self-evaluation uh and think about how we can improve more on presenting ourselves our best selves to the job that we've worked hard for and that you deserve Uh, until then if you like what you hear certainly consider giving us a follow sharing us 
We're leaving us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Uh, this is White Coats the Round Table, and I hope all of you guys have a great day. Thank you.